All right, thanks everyone. So the discussion that I'm going to introduce is actually imperialism and revolution in the Middle East. So I'm, I'm going to start with looking at imperialism globally, um, but particularly in the Middle East, and then move on to uh, the prospects of revolution um, in the fight for Palestine. To begin with, as, as we are, as the whole world watches this uh, catastrophe in Gaza unfold, the genocide, you know, the, just the, the constant stream of unspeakable horror, the mass murder around the world, as we also around the world move into action against it, rallying spectacularly in our millions, the protests, the sit-ins, the, the Sunday rallies that we've all had, but then also many of us in this room and again all around the world organising and organising and organising, confronting in our own way the media, confronting our governments in our organising, we're confronting our bosses in their silence about what's happening, we're confronting our labour officials, we're um, forming solidarity. There is an instinctive understanding form it, forming, I think, that this genocide is about everything. It, it has crystallised the truth of our whole political reality and everything you know, that we kind of have experienced politically over the last couple of decades you know, is being concentrated into, into what's happening in Palestine. And I think we, we see ourselves and we feel our power pitted against you know, a, a global power, a global, brutal, you know, disgusting force that we are forming an instinctive clarity that we are together against. And I, I think this is so important and I can't see this being shaken in any particular way, you know, anytime soon or even over the next decades, the depth of understanding that we have formed in this, in this particular moment. But I think it's so important and the, and the reason for this talk is to clarify further and analyse what it is that we're looking at. What are we up against? What are the forces arrayed against Gaza in the Middle East and around the world and against us as we you know, stand in solidarity with Palestine? Because the lessons that have been learned so many times by our comrades in the Middle East that have been demonstrated for us, that are available for us to learn about what imperialism looks like, about the, the ferocity of it um, and what we need politically to arm ourselves with in order to, to, to deal a blow to it. You know, it can't be for nothing that our comrades have paid, you know, as I said, in blood so many times over for those lessons. So there is a lot to learn um, and that we, we need to look at and analyse, uh, not just instinctively, but consciously and politically today. So I'm just going to go through, I guess, a, a series of things, because I think when we're talking to people about, you know, why, why, trying to grapple with why is there a genocide happening now, there are a series of kind of questions that maybe we don't linger on but need unpacking. So firstly, why, why is Israel exterminating en masse at the moment the, um, the people of Gaza? Why is it so relentless and is it something specific to Netanyahu and his, his crazy right-wing particular form of, of Zionism or, is, or is, it, um, is it something different? And surely, surely, you know, we've heard people say on the stores there's a madness in their own kind of logic of settler colonial terms that, you know, this, this assault on Gaza will create instability. It will destroy the relationships that Israel has been trying to set up, you know, with the, the Abraham Accords, the, 
you know, it's going to plant the seeds of revolt. It's it's self-defeating, in other words, and that it's 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 particular lunacy, and that there maybe is some internal logic to Israel that will um, restrain Netanyahu. Obviously, at this point, that's no. Like the answer is no. In reality, we've seen no. That's just not going to happen. But why hasn't it happened? I think there is disquiet amongst Americans about Netanyahu's intemperate optics, like the fact that he is not, uh, like he is um, so willing to be so open, to be so blatant about the genocidal intentions and so on. There's there's a concern about that and an irritation potentially about that. But, you know, since its establishment, I think we just need to be so clear on this and that's why, you know, it's the first point. Since its establishment, this is the nature of Israel. This this exterminating uh, ethnic cleansing genocide is, is the nature of Israel, both in the fact that it's established on top of the lives of Palestinians, on top of the, um, of the very existence of Palestinians. It required ethnic cleansing and continues to require it because Palestinians continue to exist and resist. But also the violence um, and the, the kind of un, uh, um, unstoppable violence is because the economy uh, and, and, and the existence of Israel is also dependent on US aid, US military aid, and it is tied up in the, um, in the project of American imperialism to terrorise, to discipline, to harass, to threaten the Middle East for the purposes of the US to project its power into the Middle East. And that is its existential kind of, that's its role. You know, we've talked about many times at these meetings the watchdog state status of Israel. It's self-consciously, you know, in the 1950s said, this is how we are going to continue to exist. We will be in America's watchdog. We will do these jobs for it. We will, it will let us off the leash to do the things that it doesn't want to do on its own accord, um, but we'll, we'll do it. And we saw that um, ever since particularly 1967, but over and over again, it's the vessel through which America um, projects its power and the reason that America continues to spend many, many billions of dollars supporting it. So, so the terror of Israel is in its essence. And uh, just an example, this is from Simon Assad, one of our comrades in, um, in the UK, who talked about one of the precedents for this. Gadi Eisenkot, an Israeli general in the 2006 war on Lebanon, he had the, the Dahya doctrine, which was, he, he, as he put it, to kill and maim as many people as possible with as little or no loss of life to Israeli soldiers in the attack on Lebanon. Once the people are terrorised, they would act as a restraint on the resistance. The mass bombardment will happen in every village from which shots were fired in the direction of Israel. We will wield disproportionate power against them and cause immense damage and destruction. From our perspective, these neighbourhoods are military bases. This isn't a suggestion. This is a plan that has already been authorised. So that was Israel's agenda and its strategy in 2006, you know, in the war against Lebanon. That is exactly what it's doing in Gaza, the difference being that that, you know, in, in Gaza, people can't escape. Uh, it, at that point in, um, in Lebanon, they were able to, but that's the, um, that's the MO of Israel. This is, this is no aberration. There is no restraint in, in, inside Israel. The protest, people have pointed out that there have been protests against Netanyahu. Those protests have been right-wing protests, calling, you know, shaming Netanyahu for not focusing more on the rescue of the um, hostages, shaming, shaming Netanyahu for giving aid to monsters. So the internal situation in Israel offers no restraint. American imperialism, which I've already touched on, there is genuinely, and no one, no one could mistake it, but it's worth just saying explicitly, there is no hope from the American ruling class. Biden has called himself a Zionist. Uh, you know, he went over there, you know, uh, on day dot to give Netanyahu a hug. 
If Israel was humiliated and existentially threatened by Hamas on October 7, then that is all the more true for the US because they were able to, you know, penetrate the US's watchdog state, its um, best-funded military outpost in the Middle East. The fact that Hamas was able to do that has shaken America to the core. It is the global hegemon and the fact that it was able to be, um, you know, that its watchdog was able to be shaken like that, it's triggered America. It's it sent shocks and that explains why it sent 100,000 tonnes of American diplomacy into the Mediterranean, the submarines, the aircraft carriers, the strike forces, the thousands of troops at the ready, $14 billion boost in aid to Israel. But, you know, I guess it's, it's worth saying that why, why this kind of huge response when at the same time Biden is stretched in the Ukraine, it's had to divert resources, literally divert military weapons for, that were going to the Ukraine to Israel and the unrest, the kind of political unrest internal to America but also around the world has undermined support for its project in the Ukraine, is shaking Biden's own, you know, support within, you know, within the US. It's not something that, um, that Biden wants, but I think the dynamic that we need, to, um, we need to be clear about is that Biden is presiding over a massive crisis of American imperialism in the Middle East and he's not quiet about it. He keeps talking about this being an inflection point. It's the most dangerous moment since the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's desperate to reassert that America is still the most essential nation, that American leadership holds the world together. Like, these are the kind of... um, This is the rhetoric that he's talking about and talking up at every possible moment. But it is because the US has been humiliated so recently in the Middle East like nothing else. It's two kind of forever wars, the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq ended in extraordinary humiliation for the US. It was not able to use those wars to recarve up um, the Middle East in its own interests in the way that it wanted to. Um, it was $2 trillion and 20 years worth of, of um, American intervention that left chaos and left the Taliban in power in, in Afghanistan. So, you know, in terms of America being able to project around the world the fact that it is the most powerful nation that can do what it likes, that it can, um, it can organise capital in its own interests and, and um, deter other imperialist forces, it just just was not able to do that and contradictorily the fact that it wasn't able to do that makes its attempts to do that makes its violence and its brutality and its attempts to interject into the into the Middle East at this point even more important to it it can't afford to do it it can't afford not to do it so it's doubling down on its watchdog state on on Israel and supporting it just two examples of the US's desperation in, in terms of, you know, the other imperialist interests that have been circling the Middle East, particularly since um, the US's withdrawal and also, um, you know, since uh, I guess the Arab Spring as well and the dynamics change there. Biden flew to Saudi Arabia in July last year to um, try and broker a deal with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, the de facto ruler of the world's biggest oil exporter, to try and moderate oil prices. So again, trying to you know reorganise the world in its own interest. He couldn't convince Saudi Arabia to do it. Instead, Saudi Arabia stuck to a deal that it had um, struck with Russia to keep prices high. And another example of just soft power in America, again, not being able to do what it wants. Um, China has taken credit for 
restoring diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia um, behind the back of the USA. So again, a huge humiliation for, for the USA in its capacity to make things happen um, in the interests of American capital. America is doubling down because if it wants something to happen in, in the Middle East, it's, it, it is entirely now reliant on Israel. If it wants to threaten Turkey, if it wants to threaten Iran and keep them in their places, it needs Israel to do it. Just turning now to the Arab states, because I think that is something... I was jumping in a taxi on the way to the rally um, on Sunday and talking to the taxi driver about, you know, the Arab states. They had uh, a meeting over the weekend, the um, Islamic, Islamic Arab meeting, calling for a ceasefire, condemning Israel. And he was really like, you know, this is good. This is something different. I think it's important to be very clear that the Arab ruling classes are entirely integrated into global capitalism and they are deep deep in the horrific violence of imperialism um, and the violence of capitalism. The Arab leaders could stop the genocide in Gaza in an instant if they wanted to. They could turn off the oil spigots. They could block the Suez Canal. They could refuse to host the American warships that are arrayed across their states. They could refuse to allow flights, but they could end capital or they could ref refuse to lend. They're not doing any of it. In fact, they voted, deliberately voted at that, at that very summit not to do it. There was a, um, a motion on the table to, I haven't got it written down, but there was a, there was a motion on the table to use oil as leverage to, um, to stop Israel and they wouldn't do it, they refused. Why are the Arab states not acting. Uh, in the first place, they are very big beneficiaries of USA. They're structured into US imperialism as well. E Egypt is the biggest beneficiary of military aid in the Middle East after Israel. Uh, Saudi Arabia is propped up. Um, it, is, it is defended by the US military. They have their own independent agendas as well. So the ruling classes of, this, of the specific states are tied up in finances with Europe, with Israel itself directly, and they want stable relations. They want, they want capitalism to run in a stable fashion with the West. They don't want Hamas. They particularly do not, you know, some of the off-the-record comments from some of the Arab leaders are something that you might hear from Israel in terms of how much they loathe Hamas and they hate the kind of the idea of the resistance that's coming there. But then, you know, on top of that, I think it's really, really important to be clear, the leaders of the Arab states are the architects of the destruction of the Arab Spring. They are the beneficiaries of the counter-revolutions that happened there. Um, they are, you know, absolutely the leaders who violently, brutally broke down those 2011 uprisings and they killed those revolutionary movements, which were the champions of Palestine. They have an equivocal interest in, in people's um, impulse for solidarity um, with Palestine. That said, they are clearly under enormous pressure, um, which explains their two-sidedness, their two-facedness. They're very happy to call for ceasefire, to facilitate the motions at the General Assembly, to talk it up, to put it on social media, to condemn Israel, etc., etc., because they are under such enormous pressure, and I'll get to the pressure in a moment. Uh, but that pressure is something that they are trying to manage and trying to contain, rather than trying to open and give space to and um, give legitimacy to. Um, that is probably their worst fear whatsoever, is to give legitimacy to, to that rage. So what about the revolution? 
the protest movements around the world are millions of people. I mean, we're feeling it. I don't think there's anyone who would be in this room tonight who hasn't felt the surge of activity and the political um, electricity of this moment. But in countries like Egypt and Jordan, Morocco, Sudan, Iraq, the stakes are so much higher. The reality is so much more sharpened because the protest movements are, you know, the, the people are tied intimately with, um, with the fate of the Palestinians because of the way that imperialism is structured into the Middle East in such a way, because of the way that America sits so heavily and has sat so heavily on the Middle East and that Israel sits so heavily, the Islamophobia, the killing of Muslims on your doorstep to identify, you know, the identification with that, um, with that struggle, with that dispossession is so essential um, and so important in understanding why people are, are fighting back in fighting back in such a heroic way. You know, just to just to mention a few, I mean, Jordan, it's the biggest protest that Jordan's ever had, ever, and it is one of the most repressive regimes in the world. So people protesting there, it's not nothing. Um, in Egypt, you know, the famously now the, um, the uh, military dictatorship put on its own anti-Israeli protest, pro-Palestinian protest, and the people themselves organised a separate protest to occupy Tahrir Square, which is the first time that that's happened since 2013. So that is, you know, it's groundbreaking because it, it symbolises the people taking the protest movement into their own hands against their own leadership, against the forces that have repressed them and that they know will betray Palestine over and over again. But this, you know, it's not happening in a vacuum either. I mean, the memory of the Arab Spring um, or, or the 2011 revolutions is um, is obviously is obviously there. But more recently, still, the uprisings across the Middle East and North Africa since 2017, 2019, in Sudan and other places as well is definitely live. The ruling class has its own bourgeois way of characterising this. It's kind of funny where, you know, the Solidarity magazine and The Economist sort of line up in, in the same message but put in different terms. And I'll just read you some examples. So the, there's a quantified risk of revolt that The Economist um, has sort of put a, put a, a counter on. And it gives it, it calculates um, the, the risk of revolt on a scale of zero to four. It says, the region is sympathetic to the Palestinians. Their dispossession is apt to stir up anger and protest like little else. Risk modelling by EIU, our sister company, grades countries on a scale of zero to four. Egypt, Jordan and Yemen have had their scores revised up since um, the attacks on Gaza to three, four and four respectively. Sudan and Lebanon were already at four. The rest of the region was already at four. So all the factors that led to the 2011 uprisings are all there but turbocharged. On a massive scale, inflation unemployment, neoliberalism, inequality, the frustrations of corrupt and heavy-handed regimes, hatred, hatred of the regimes is absolutely um, sharpened. And on top of that, the solidarity movement in the West is being beamed into the phones of all those people, all those people who, you know, in 2011, you couldn't say that. It was the Arab Spring that we were all watching, but now you see hundreds of thousands of people in London, people standing up to riot police in France, you know, people here, the, the unionists here standing up and saying we are one, we are Palestinians you add that to the mix in the Middle East and you have an extraordinary confidence but the lessons to learn from those revolutions just going back to the questions of imperialism are very very important so in Egypt in particular in 2013 you had the people chanting that the people in the army are one 
You have people, you know, the revolution took 18 days to bring down that regime with protests in the square and, and in the workplaces. Uh, but the, um, the movement trusted the army and that army that we've just talked about structured into global imperialism, structured into the US imperialist interests, funded by the US uh, government, broke that revolution. It, it first tried with the Muslim Brotherhood. It accepted the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood when the Muslim Brotherhood wouldn't put down the strikes, couldn't destroy the revolution. It assassinated the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood, handed revolution, uh, sorry, the, the regime over to um, a coup and in its own hands it slaughtered the revolutionary leadership there. That lesson is there for us and, and there for everybody, writ large in Sudan at the moment where you have the government forces and forces funded by the EU to destroy and kill, you know, kill people fleeing from the Middle East. That The RSF is funded by the EU to do that. Those forces aligned to crush the revolution. The army, the forces, of imperialism at every stage can't be trusted and that goes for our government too because our government is structured into global imperialism is structured into this system too that's that's why we have you know this this horrific deep deep support for Israel from every institution in our society you have principals telling school <laughs> students that if they support Palestine they're ideological and they'll be they'll be reported to the police that's what we're up against those are the forces of imperialism writ down into our system over and over again and that's what we're up against but the counter forces of that are millions and millions and millions of people learning those lessons knowing who is on our side and taking action against that so I think the prospects are there but we can't just work off instinct we have to learn those lessons and keep the fight up